0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, Luke twelve forty nine through 53. As we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke, our sermon this morning is entitled Division and a Fire. And our key words for our worshipers in training are fire, peace, and division. Back in 2007, there was a young man by the name of Shirzad Adilov, and he had just graduated from high school in Jacksonville, Arkansas. He was an exchange student from Uzbekistan. At 18 years old, Sherzad was excited about his future. He had done very well in school. But when he called his parents in Uzbekistan after graduating, he wanted to share with them the most important news of what was going on in his life. He spoke with his father and he said, Dad, I have something very important to tell you. It's a really big change in my life. And I hope you're not going to be upset with me, but I am a Christian now. And I'm going to be baptized. And there was a very long pause without a word. And Shirzad asked, Dad, are you okay? And then his father spoke. Shirzad, if this is what you are going to do, and if you are not going to follow the teaching of Islam, there is no hope for you to return to Uzbekistan. And if you ever do come to Uzbekistan, stay away from my house. You will no longer speak with those you once knew as your brother or your sister or your mother or any other relatives. You are no longer my son. Shirzad tried to call his family every day for weeks on end, but never did anyone answer the phone. Uh, Six years later today, Shirzad has said, I am not sorry I became a Christian. I am not sorry for being baptized. And even though my parents and all of my family has disowned me, I am not sorry for anything that has happened. Now the truth is, every day around the world, Christians are being rejected by their family members, their friends, and in some parts of the world, even their entire community. Why? Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of us have probably experienced that reality on some level. Probably not to the extent of what I just told, but some more than others, all of us have probably had friendships that have dissolved or or family members that have become alienated or contentious because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I thank God for a young man like Sherzad, who is willing to look at the eternal weight of glory, to be found in the perfect work and the perfect person of Jesus Christ, and to know that everything in his life, even his family, is counted as loss compared to knowing and loving and abiding in Jesus Christ, his Lord. Of the name of Jesus Christ, His name alone, always produces some kind of painful division, even in the most personal of relationships. Just think of Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Those are very offensive words in a very pluralistic society. But Jesus did not come into the world to tell people that all paths lead to God. And in fact, he says the very opposite. He did not come to tell people that what you believe does not matter. In fact, he doesn't leave us confused about the fact that what we believe is essential. Jesus did not believe that all people are good or espouse that perfectibility of humanity. In fact, we have a very clear indication in the scriptures that we're not good. Rather, our hearts are corrupt. They're filled with wicked intentions. We are naturally hostile toward God. Jesus did not say that you can do whatever you want as long as it does not hurt anyone else. No, his moral standard is not optional, and it does not bend. His ethics are radical. He demands careful obedience and costly loyalty, and not everyone is willing to pay the price or to accept those who do. In our text this morning, we see Jesus' unflinching assertion that when all of this comes to a head, When you take all of the factors of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' demands and they begin to take root and be worked out in your life, the reality of his presence in the world will come to roost and it may happen in your very own home. There's no doubt that Jesus has been a polarizing figure from the moment of his birth through the last 2,000 years of Christian history. And we will see this highlighted in his teaching The absolute divisiveness of Jesus. But that's not all we see about Jesus. We also need to look and we will look at the great stress, the tremendous pressure under which Jesus labored every single minute of his life and ministry. There's no doubt that what Jesus came to accomplish in fulfilling what the Father sent him to do and in bearing the weight of what was to come and taking upon himself the full wrath of God to atone for the sins of the world, in doing so, he experienced great agony, great distress. So let's read and we will get a feel for both of these truths in the life and ministry of Jesus, his divisiveness. His divisiveness. And his agony. Let's look beginning in verse 49 of Luke chapter 12. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, it's very important for us to remember the context in which Luke is writing. Recall, last week, we were looking at Jesus' teaching regarding his second coming. Now, Luke is not all of the sudden sending us into a different direction in these verses. But what we see here is the prophetic word of Jesus concerning his death and also the reality of the judgment that is yet to come. So we have to think in the midst of all of this about these things that Jesus is highlighting. The way that his coming will divide. And secondly, the distress that he endures as the cross looms in the future. So first, let's consider Jesus' divisiveness. Verses 51 through 53 give us a picture of of a division within one's own household. Now, Jesus presents us with something of a paradox here, right? Because we see over and over and over again in the Bible that we are commanded by God to be at peace with all men, as far as it is possible. The Spirit of God is not a spirit of contentiousness or unnecessary division, but is a spirit of peace and unity. Jesus himself wasn't contentious or argumentative as a man. He was patient. He was kind. He was direct. He was very clear. He was truthful, but he wasn't a brawler. He wasn't looking for a fight. And yet he was and still remains today the most divisive person in all of the history of the world. And we see right here, and we know that to be the case. Now notice Jesus isn't advocating a spirit of dissension. He's not advocating a spirit of disunity, but he is predicting what is inevitable. So why? Why is it that Jesus is such a divisive and polarizing figure? Well, at the heart of all conflict regarding Jesus is the claim that he and he alone is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of all mankind, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect law-fulfilling life, dying a sinner's death on a cross, being raised from the dead to reign and rule from heaven forever and ever. And so when people's feathers begin to get ruffled and tensions run high, it's when we begin to deal with all of what that means in light of us being sinful humans in need of redemption because given the claims of jesus and the claims of christianity one is not able to be casual or neutral about jesus it's simply not an option neutrality about jesus does not work you either love jesus or you hate jesus There is no middle ground. So as a result, a Christian's commitment to him has caused and will cause strife even within one's own family. So here's the deal. Regardless of what people try to do with Jesus and his claims, we have to acknowledge the fact that the teaching of Jesus is very self-centered, right? Now don't hear me wrong, Jesus as a man and in his ministry is abundantly more other-centered than you and I would ever hope or imagine to be. It's simply not in us to love our neighbors in the way which Jesus has done, even to the point of death. But I'm not talking about Jesus as a man, I'm talking about what he is teaching The teaching of Jesus is incredibly centered on himself, isn't it? Think about it. While all of the other religions of the world are looking to the universe or to some idea, to this deity or that, all of the teachers and all of the supposed prophets are saying, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at that out there. I am not the truth. The truth is out there to be discovered. The truth is out there to behold. But what's Jesus saying? Jesus is constantly saying, look at me. Look at me. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Don't look at there. Look right here. And if you take a look at all kinds of things that Jesus says and compare it to what everyone else has to say, there's a stark contrast. And I'm not suggesting what what others say, whether they're Christian or not, are bad things to say. It's an absolutely right and true thing to say. I'm not the truth. The problem starts to come when anyone outside of Christ begins to say, That the truth is over there, follow that, and whatever they're pointing to is not Jesus. Because Jesus is always saying, what you think of me really matters. All the other founders of religions are always saying, what you think of me doesn't matter. And that's actually true. But you see, they don't know the solution. They're pointing to all of the wrong things. Even John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all, he said, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. In other words, I don't care if when I'm dead, nobody ever remembers me again. If you will just give yourself to our Savior. If only our Savior will be glorified. If only our Savior will be exalted That's the way all of the great teachers always have been. All they ever said was, I don't matter at all. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus continually says, what you think of me matters. It matters eternally. Your entire destiny, your entire life depends on what you think about me. And the contrast here cannot be any stronger Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, on the last day, many people will come thinking they're ready to get into the kingdom of heaven. But if Jesus looks at you and says, I don't know you, you cannot enter. Elsewhere, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus is constantly asking, who do you say that I am? Now think of this for a second. See, we're all used to this in Jesus. Whether you come to church a lot or you don't, you're probably used to the idea that Jesus has made these claims. But maybe you've never taken the time to think about just how radical and really how ridiculous and self-centered that these would be in the average human being. Who talks like that? Nobody who has any friends, I'll tell you that. You don't keep friends very long if every conversation begins and ends with you and, oh, by the way, everything in the middle is about me. Think about it. But remember how Jesus interacted with people. What were his conversations about? You're a sinner and I'm your Savior. Submit to me. They were all about him. For example, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Sell all that you have and then come and follow me. I should be more important. As long as I'm not more important than every cent of your wealth, you will not get into heaven. Remember when he sits down with Nicodemus. Nicodemus wants to talk about theology. He's a theologian. And Jesus says, but enough talk about you. You have to believe in me or you're dead. Jesus is constantly saying, if your eye is keeping me, keeping you from me, if your hand keeps you from me, pluck it out, cut it off. It's not worth it. I should be the thing that makes you even want to get up in the morning. So what do you think of me? So you see, when the unconverted heart, when the unregenerate man or woman has a heart that is naturally already bent toward hostility against God, the words of Jesus all the more are going to cause division. But I say all of that and want to offer us a warning because we have to be very careful. Because what this division is, is just as important as what it's not. Now, no doubt, as we follow Christ, we will experience division. However, it's also true that a lot of Christians suffer division, not because they follow Jesus, but because they're judgmental, harsh, critical, prideful, self-righteous jerks when they interact with other people. Jesus isn't giving us license here to be obnoxious Christians, shutting the door on every relationship that we have if people don't want to hear us when we talk to them about the gospel. He's not calling us to be intentional in a pursuit to cause division and strife. We, as Christians, are called to live lives of reconciliation as the church, utilizing our spiritual gifts to see to it that men and women are reconciled to God. Resting in the virtue of patience, and as I said earlier, living, with pe- living at peace with all men whenever it is possible. But listen, the very fact that we believe and will tell others that they are wrong in what they believe and that their assertions about life are false and that they are in sin and under the judgment of God, that in itself is quite enough to invoke the ire of sinners. We need not add to it by being pompous buffoons. Have you been guilty of this? I know that I have. I've damaged, I've even destroyed relationships in my life because instead of remembering in my interactions with others that I too was once an enemy of God in need of reconciliation, instead I pridefully assume that the other person is rejecting me. And so I go on the defensive. But you know what? It's not about me and it's not about you. They're not rejecting us so much as they are rejecting God. They're hostile toward God. And unless God changes their hearts, unless God makes them to be new creations, makes them to see their sinful condition and their need for a Savior, unless God makes them willing to throw themselves upon the mercy of Christ, there is nothing I can do personally that will change their hearts. I don't need to be an offensive, aggressive, antagonistic truth teller. That's a wrong way to say the right things. And I regret the fact that I've ever done so. But you see, division will come regardless. It will come because of Jesus' claims. And so we need not be the ones who get in the way. Now, in addition to that, we need to be careful about how we talk about this division that will come. It's popular to say, and we may have heard, that the gospel is what causes division. It's not the gospel that causes division. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness that sinful men and women can be reconciled to God and stand justified before him on the day of judgment. That's not the cause of division and strife upon the earth. It's not the gospel to blame. It's the corrupt and unbelieving hearts of men and women that cause division. It's not God's glorious remedy, which is at fault, but it's the diseased nature of Adam's race, which like a self-willed child refuses the medicine provided for the cure. And Jesus is telling us that so long as there will be men and women who will repent and believe the gospel, while others will not and will continue to walk in their sin, And as we continue to repeat to the world the self-centered claims of Jesus, there will be division in the world, and we should not be surprised by it all. And sadly for many, that means that we will live the rest of our lives with circumstances like Shirzad, completely alienated from father, mother, brother, sister, all other family members when they reject the very truth of God and decide they can no longer continue in a relationship with us. That's the point of what Jesus is saying here. He gives us the illustration of a family of five, two against three. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, and maybe this one's not so hard to believe, mothers-in-law against daughters-in-law. They will be divided. Because when some accept and believe the claims of Jesus, while others are quick to reject them, there will be friction. Those who live at enmity with God and hate Jesus will, at a minimum, distance themselves. Please don't talk to me about that. I don't want to hear about that. Sometimes they'll cut off the relationship altogether. And what can we do about that? Nothing. Nothing at all. We can continue to pray for them. We can make ourselves available whenever possible to be reconciled and enjoy a relationship with them. But when we begin to live out all of the implications of the Christian life, it will not sit well with those who are hostile to the truth of God and his word. Why? Because the things of our lives have had to change dramatically. And the things in how we live our lives and how we interact with others change dramatically. So what do you do when you become a Christian and your brother comes for a visit and brings his homosexual partner? What about a son who comes home from college with his girlfriend? What are the sleeping arrangements going to be in these situations compared to what they might have been before? How about a husband who'd rather watch football and play golf on the Lord's Day instead of going to church? What is a faithful wife going to do? What about a wife who's not a Christian and is encouraging her daughters toward vanity and immodesty? What is a Christian father going to do? You see, we could come up with a a hundred different scenarios, but the result is always going to be the same. Jesus has made very specific claims on the lives of his people and on all of humanity. And so we have to ask, what are we going to do with these? We can go along with the world to get along and be uh, disobedient to God, or we can obey God knowing that it will, without a doubt... Bring division. If we are faithfully applying the teaching of Jesus in our Christian lives, there will be division. It cannot be avoided. And as sad as it is, and as heartbreaking as the results often are, we must be faithful to God. He's to be submitted to and obeyed no matter what. And when you begin to work out all of the implications of obedience to God's commands, and your life begins to change, So do many of your relationships. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. And sometimes it hurts very deeply. But there's a far greater weight in the glory of heaven than there is in the relationships we have on earth. Do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. In other words, are you going to follow me? Then be prepared because it will cause division because of who I am and what I say and what I demand. It is unavoidable. And it's all because of things like what we see Jesus saying back in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Now the hearers of Jesus would have known exactly what he was talking about right here. Throughout the Old Testament, fire refers to the day of judgment, or as the minor prophets often say, the day of the Lord. Now, likewise, if you remember back to Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist said of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And what does that fire look like? He said, his winnowing fork is in hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's judgment. It's the final day, the fire of judgment. But we know, too, that fire is a cleanser, and in cleansing, it divides, right? Things that last, they need fire as a solvent. I need fire to cleanse. I need fire to refine and to divide the dross from the actual gold. It's an important process. You don't just find a piece of ore and know automatically what part of it's valuable and what part's not. It needs to be refined. It needs to go through the fire. It will cleanse. It will take away the impurities. And it will maintain that which is pure and valuable. Now with that said, we must remember the context here. This is in the midst of Jesus talking about the second coming. And we believe the second coming of Christ and the final judgment are one single cataclysmic event. Upon Christ's return, the sheep separated from the goats, the wheat gathered into the barn, the chaff burned up in the eternal fire. And we see this in John's revelation where he depicts the final judgment in very sobering terms. In Revelation 20, John writes about the fire from heaven that will consume those who rebel against God. He says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life." is also the day of judgment, making the end of unbelief and human rebellion in the world. The trumpet has sounded. The last day has come. The last and final day of the evil present age has come to an end. And Jesus and John and Paul, all of them connect this to the events of Jesus' second coming. It will be the most frightening day known to humanity when kings and princes and generals and privates and rich and poor and great and small and slave and free will quake and tear, praying for rocks to fall upon them to hide them from the fury of the one who sits on the throne of judgment. The great day of God's wrath has come. Who can stand it? But for those who are Christ's, it is a day of blessed hope. So this is what Jesus is talking about in verse 49 when he speaks of casting fire upon the earth. The day when all wickedness and all lawlessness will be finally judged and when justice and mercy will triumph in the final consummation in the kingdom of Christ. And this has major implications for us, doesn't it? We need to think about this. You know, so often in life when we deal with circumstances, we're prone to feel wronged. We feel sinned against. And in the context of what Jesus is saying, we may encounter division in some of the most unjust ways that we can imagine. We're going to encounter some very hateful division that hurt us to the core. But do we assume that evildoers are going to run free in the end? Do we assume that nice guys who do what God commands of them while following and loving Jesus always finish last and that there is no vindication? Think about it. What do you really think about when you're treated wrongly or when you consider injustice in the world or when you consider injustice that's going on right beside you? There's a vision in Revelation 6 where John the Apostle looks up and he says, I saw under the heavenly altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. Think about all of the innocent blood that's been shed in this world. Think about all of the widows and orphans who have been ground into the mud. Think about the genocide of the world. Think of all the oppression and all of the injustice. Think about the merciless slaughter of unborn children in our country day after day after day after day. What if there's no afterlife? What if there's no bigger world? What if there's no eternity? What if there is no judgment day? Not only does that mean that we will never be able to overcome injustice, but we can't even identify what is unjust because you see, unless there's a standard, an eternal standard by which everyone is to be judged, who's to say what's right and wrong? If I walk on you to reach my goals, who are you to say that's the wrong thing to do? There's a man named Aldous Huxley. He died in 1963. He was a kind of philosopher. And he said this. He said, I wanted the universe to be without meaning. When I studied whether the universe had meaning or not, whether there was a heaven or hell, when I looked at the question of whether the universe had meaning and whether there was an afterlife and a judgment day, I did not come at it as an intellectual exercise. I wanted the universe to be meaningless because I wanted to be able to live the way I wanted. To declare the universe meaningless was the only way I could be liberated sexually and politically. He goes on to say, there's a price to pay because if you believe there's no judgment, that all things are meaningless, so I can live any way that I want, then I have to live with a despair. I have to realize my sense of right and wrong is on a complete whim. It's totally subjective. It's just my opinion. The good die young. Nice guys finish last. The villains will oppress people to the end of time. After it's all done, none of it will be repaid. But then Huxley said, I had to choose. Either I could believe in judgment, and then I would be crushed under a load of guilt all my life, or I could, believe in ju- I could not believe in judgment, and then I could live as I wanted to live, in existential despair all of my life. Those are the only two alternatives. I choose freedom. I choose liberation. And so Huxley lived the rest of his life as though life had no meaning, as if there was no right and wrong, as if there was no eternity. And frankly, that is the problem. He nailed it. If there is no judgment, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a judgment, what hope is there for me? Let me say that again. If there is no judgment day, there is no hope. What hope is there for the world? Why even look for justice? How do you even know what justice is? You're going to be crushed. You see, the irony of all of the philanthropic endeavors in the world that exclude Jesus Christ... Or that they're seeking to do that which they claim to be just and good and right. Based upon what? Based upon what? Their own understanding of what's good and right and just. But if it conflicts with what I think is good and right and just, who determines who's right? You see, without a standard... And without judgment, there is no hope. So should we go around always oppressed, always guilty, because we know of the judgment? Or should we be liberated and completely and totally hopeless? I propose that we need not go either route, but that there's a third way. And it's right here in our text if Jesus Christ had never come along, if Jesus had not brought the message of the gospel, then those two things are the only alternatives that we would have to choose from. But there is a third way, and here's the reason why. And this gets at the heart of Jesus' personal agony. Look at verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is this baptism he speaks of? You know, in Mark chapter 8, James and John were walking along with Jesus and they said, Lord, when we come into your kingdom, could we be your... Vice presidents. Could we be your right hand man? Can we be your top lieutenants? Can we be your cabinet of advisors? And Jesus looks at them and says something to the nature of, will you be able to be baptized? With the baptism I'm going to receive or to drink the cup I am going to drink? In the Old Testament, the cup is the wrath of God. It is, as we just spoke of earlier, the fire of God. So, we see the fire and the baptism and the cup, they're all the same thing. When Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, he's not talking about a water baptism. He's already been baptized by John the Baptist. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the cup, the fire. What he's saying, astonishingly, is, I'm going to come to bring fire on the earth, but before I can, the fire has to fall upon me. I will take the cup. I will be baptized with the fire. And this I must undergo. And how distressed and how beaten into the ground I am until it is finished. Now, friends, what do we learn here? We learn that you and I need to run to him. Not out of fear of the fire. If you want to be saved by Jesus because of fear of the fire, you don't understand. We run to Jesus because the love and the mercy that Jesus provides is what we have all been looking for our entire lives but seeking to find in everything that does not satisfy His love for you is a love that endured the very fire of God. And think of what the fire of God can burn up. It will consume the whole earth. It can burn almost anything, but it couldn't burn up the love of Jesus for his people. Look at what it has already endured. And so that means it will be there for you. And sinner, that means it is there for you when you give yourself to him. His love cannot fail. You might be saying, "Uh, I have done so much. I'm such a vile sinner. There's no way that God could love me. But look what Christ has endured. This is what you've always really looked and longed for. But you've sought it in so many different ways. Your marriage is not going to give it to you. Your friendships, your professional success, your international acclaim, and all the entertainment in the world that you can pursue, none of it is going to give you what you want. And a lot of you haven't experienced any of those things before. Therefore, you don't believe it yet. But trust me when I tell you, that you can put all of your trust in everything in the world, but it is not going to provide any satisfaction. It's not going to provide any joy that will last. They will not. They cannot. They were never intended to. It is so unfortunate that so many people have spent their whole lives getting to the apex of what they consider to be success, and when they get there, they realize, this is not what I wanted. Don't do that. Don't go all that way. You need not do so. Flee to the Savior, not out of fear of the fire, but out of an amazement that he has loved with such a great love that he has endured the fire, the wrath of the Father on behalf of his people. He took upon himself the fire that you and I deserved. You know, there's a lot of ways to talk about what it means to become a Christian. Here's one of them. To look at God and say, Father, one of the reasons I've had such a miserable life is because I've been preparing to stand in my own name before the judgment seat. And now I could see I could never do that. I can never stand the cleansing fire because it will reveal my true motives. And my motives are sick. My motives are selfish. I could never, ever stand up before your evaluation because I've broken your law numerous times. But Jesus has, and Jesus was perfect. And Jesus fulfilled all that I never could, granting a righteousness that I needed. And he has taken upon himself my punishment. And so I rest in him so that on the judgment day, when the fire falls, it will swirl around me like it swirled around Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. But it will never consume me because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who has already endured the judgment of God for me and not a hair on my head will be singed why because you see when Jesus is your savior all judgment upon you is gone you're not guilty there's no more for you and that friends whether you believe it or not is really what you're looking for as you search everything else in the world. Someone who will love you and show you mercy and grace like Jesus. Someone who will take this agony into his own soul. Someone who lived under all of this for you. Now do you realize how different it would be if you believed this? I know some of you say, well, I do believe this. I've been a Christian for a while now. I believe all of this to be true. Sure you do. Then why don't you forgive other people? I'll tell you why we have trouble. Do you know why we have trouble forgiving other people? We say we believe Jesus is the the judge and, and he deserves to be the judge because he is the judge who has been judged on our behalf, he deserves to be able to bring fire on the earth because he said, anyone who believes in me will be exempt from that fire because I've taken it for you. Do you believe he's the judge? If you do, then why are you bitter? Why is there bitterness in your heart? And you're sitting there maybe saying, oh, I wish such and such a person would finally get this, would finally hear that would finally get what's coming to them. You don't believe in the judgment. If you're able to apply this doctrine to your heart, there is complete freedom to forgive. And you never have to worry. It can't control you anymore. And the way other people interact with you, with hatred and anger, it doesn't control you anymore. And so the division that comes as a result of our relationship with Christ and how others interact with that because they hate Christ. It doesn't cause us to falsely judge them. It doesn't cause us to be unforgiving and hateful and bitter toward them because we know that Jesus is not going to let anybody, anywhere, get away with anything. That person that you're so mad at and some of you sitting here right now are mad at somebody. Either Jesus will pay that debt or that person themselves will pay their debt. Everything will be square. There is a judgment day. And you are not, shall not be, and should not try to be the judge. You are completely and totally unqualified for the job. Emotionally, you'll be put through the ringer. You will be devastated until you stop trying to be everyone else's judge. So the call on our lives is to faithfully and joyfully live out the Christian life, turning daily to Christ and to his word, walking faithfully in all that he commands of us. And to know in the midst of it full well that it will bring about division. But in the end, all of the wrongs will be made right. And the judgment of God will fall. And his people will be vindicated. Oh, what a savior we have in Jesus. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a great and faithful and loving master and Lord we have in Jesus. He gave his all he sank into the waters of death that he would receive the fire that is reserved for us and that we might rest in his peace. I close with the words of J.C. Ryle. Let us thank God that a time is coming when there shall be no more division on earth, but all shall be of one mind. That time shall be when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes again in person and puts down every enemy under his feet. When the wicked are separated from the righteous and cast down to their own place, then and not until then will be perfect peace. For the blessed time, let us wait and watch and pray. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Our divisions are but for a little season but our peace shall endure to eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of truth. We thank you, God, that we need not question the reality of what comes in the life of a faithful believer in Christ who picks up their cross and follows you daily. We know, Lord, we know from your word, and many of us know from our own personal experience, that it brings about great division. Uh, But we know, Lord, that you bring peace. You give us hope. We have an assurance of the second coming and the eternity that lies before us. And Lord, as we consider all of the injustice in the world and all of the injustice that surrounds us in our daily lives, Lord, I pray that we would trust and we would have hope in the final judgment where no wrong will go unpunished, where no account will be left unsettled, where no wrong will not be made right, But God, we know that in Christ Jesus, the sins and injustice of those whom you have called according to your purposes, it has all been accounted for in Christ who endured the fire of your wrath. But for those who continue to refuse the offer of mercy given in Christ, we know, Lord, they will pay the just penalty of their very own sins for eternity. And so, Father, we say and we pray and ask that you would give us greater patience and that as you tell us, along with all of the martyrs who have suffered unjustly in this world, that we with them would wait with patience a little while longer because we know that your word is true. And so, Father, remove from our hearts unforgiveness, all unbitterness. We know, Lord, that the truth will prevail and that your people will be vindicated in the end. May we endure various trials of this life with joy, because we know that you are being glorified, regardless of what those circumstances are. Our division, our enmity with others, and their hostility toward us because of you, we must endure only for a little while. But the rest and the peace and the joy that awaits us is forever. And may our hope be found in that. Lord, transform our hearts, renew our minds that we might live according to your word, for your glory. For Jesus' sake, for our good, in his holy and precious name we pray, amen.